Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show State Representative Patricia Duffy, who is the representative for, for the 5th Hamden District, which is Holyoke, plus one precinct in Chicopee. We traditionally know it as the Holyoke District, one of the few districts, three, I believe, in the state that have as its, at its core one city or municipality, and that is Holyoke. Representative Duffy, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to begin by sharing with you an article that was in this morning's Republican, the headline, Three Things to Know About the Prescription Drug Bill the Mass Senate Could Vote On. Provisions include governing cost of generic medications, limiting copays for brand name meds, and this article says this, the Massachusetts Senate is expected to vote on a bill Wednesday that would lower drug costs in the state while holding pharmaceutical companies accountable for price hikes. The bill, with a quite interesting name, an act relating to pharmaceutical access, cost, and transparency. Pharmaceutical Access, Cost, and Transparency, P-A-C-T, goes by the acronym PACT 3.0. And it makes insurers, including MassHealth, cover the cost of generic medications for free while limiting copays to brand name medications to $25. A, I think, significant piece of legislation in the Senate. We'll see what happens when it gets to the House. I would like your comment on that. And I'd like your comment in particular because I know you have been working on a long-term care bill and I know the Medicare for All bill is coming up. Sounds like the Massachusetts legislature is devoting itself and focusing on health care in a significant way. This legislation, something I can't remember the legislature having done for years. Tell us where all this stands, if you would, please. Patricia Duffy. Hey, good morning. Great to talk to you. And I love this topic. Um, really important to all of us, right? And so, so I totally agree. Uh, um, all conversations and all signs are pointing to the legislature really taking up um, some important health care reforms. And uh, there's actually a local, very poignant note to this, that um, a few years ago, uh, you know, five, six years ago, when I was a staffer for my predecessor, Rep Vega, um, the, uh, both chambers of the legislature were really tackling a health care reform bill and its original author in the large omnibus um, uh, version was the late Representative Peter Cocott. And the bill was to be called the Peter Cocott Bill on um, Health Care Reform or uh, uh, something like that. And, um, and at the uh, midnight hour, the House and the Senate did not come to an agreement on that. And so that large bill... Uh, did not get passed. Fast forward, we go through a pandemic and are reminded once again of a bunch of huge holes in our healthcare system and protecting patients and um, uh, helping bolster good healthcare systems. And so we really are uh, turning to it. The, the, um, pharma the pharmacy bill, uh, prescription uh bill that the Senate is taking up. I love it. I can't wait till it comes to the House. I got a, um, a fun sneak preview of some of it because I'm on the health care finance uh, committee. And uh, so I was there at the hearing. Um, and uh, there were some folks from the pharmaceutical 
industry, not, you know, the scientists or stuff, but sort of like folks, this was all in the paper, so I'm not telling uh, school uh, stories out of school. Uh, folks called pharmacy benefit managers, and to anyone out there who's listening, I, I apologize for what I'm about to say, but they got roasted by the committee. I mean, the uh, the chairs of the committee were, you know, were just like, listen, you guys are not helping us with uh, with cost containment. Uh, it was it was quite traumatic in legislative terms. Um, so I'm looking forward to the House taking up that bill. Rep, Rep, uh, Rep Duffy, let me interrupt for one second. You say you're on, on the committee. Is this a joint House and Senate committee that yep. had the hearing? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, yeah. and was the yeah. bill reported out favorably from the committee? Yes, it was. So that it so it went to the um, it went to the Senate floor. Yes. So uh, I'm expecting in the new year we'll be taking the House will be taking will be taking um, it or it as part of a larger package. Some you know sometimes we take things up as a as a big omnibus. Uh, um, yeah. So uh, today at ten o'clock. That same joint committee on healthcare financing is going to be hearing um, the Medicare for All bill, uh, which is you know having Massachusetts take up that model of um, you know that we see work well in other countries that are you know, not as prosperous as us even. Um, uh, you know I'm a huge fan of that. Uh, and Medicare for all would mean what in terms of uh, revising or expanding mass health? It, that's exactly what it would be, that um, we would have a program here in Massachusetts where the way you pay for your health insurance is it would be, it, there would be a tax. It would be a, a tax on payroll for every resident of Massachusetts, but Study after study, including from our good friends at UMass, uh, economist Jerry Friedman, has shown that the, the cost of that payroll tax is so much less than what we all pay for co-pays, deductibles, insurance, you know, the insurance that, we, you know, we all pay a huge part of our insurance premiums, even if our employers pick up the bulk of it. You know, I think small businesses, all of us should be lining up in support of this. I mean, not just in Massachusetts, but let's just tackle Massachusetts for now. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, I, I, don't, I don't think that it's going to uh, pass this year. Just, um, but we just got to, like, keep making the argument and fighting it, fighting for it. Okay, so in our conversation so far today, Rep. Duffy, we have three balls in the air. We have the Long-Term Care Act, which you've been oh, working yes. on. We're, we have the yes, Medicare, the houses, Medicare yeah, for All, up. which you've been talking about in just the past few moments, and we have PAC 3.0. Let's, let's go back and sort this out a little bit, one at a time. The Long-Term Care Bill that you've been working on, tell us what it is and where it stands legislatively. So I should say um, I, I've uh, it was in the healthcare finance committee. The sponsors are uh, my colleagues Tom Stanley and um, Kate Lipper Garabedian, and I really apologize. The Senate sponsor is escaping me right at this moment. Um, so you know 
I, I heard it in a committee, but um, I don't have my fingers in it. But I will tomorrow when uh, the House will be taking it up now related to Medicare for all. What we are not able to tackle is protecting people's assets better as they or their family members enter long-term care. Uh, you know, that whole like insurance uh, piece of it. But what we are able to tackle is once again, in the pandemic, you know, we were forced to look at problems that have existed for a long time. Um, and now like, let's keep looking at them. And they include the problems with some of our long-term care facilities. I mean, a number of them closed down uh, during the pandemic, including around in this region. Um, that really puts people in, you know, a beyond precarious position. Uh, we don't pay our healthcare workers, our CNAs, those folks who are caring for us as we get older, our family members as they get older. We don't pay them enough. We have a workforce crisis. Um, so this bill uh, provides incentives, better pay, uh, career ladder training, um, and also gives the Department of Public Health uh, more tools and oversight over our long-term care facilities. So, Rep. Duffy, so, it sounds to me as if the committee knows, and, and well, maybe let me revise that since I'm not sure you can speak for the entire committee, but you know <laughs> what the policy fixes are for long-term care and that what a lot of this comes down to is paying for it. Is that wrong or is that right? Well, I, I think that is, a, that is a big piece of it. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I do personally think that we could solve a lot of problems by going for, for a Medicare for All um, solution. But I'm also not, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a policymaker. So if we're not there yet, I do believe that um, there's great work we can do uh, supporting our healthcare workers, patients, uh, healthcare facilities uh, in the meantime as we uh, work to bring everybody uh, to bring everybody like to see the truth that we really should be going to a Medicare for all. Well, let, let's stay with this long-term care bill for a moment, if we could. Yeah. It, you told us that it came out of the uh, health health. What's the name of the committee? The health care. It's the health care financing. It started off in um, in the committee of elder affairs. Probably got a hearing in public health too, and then it came to health care financing, and uh, and was you know. So what I, what I think what, what I think I know about this legislative process is that if it comes out of a committee, particularly a joint committee with a favorable recommendation, and is going to the floor of the House and or the Senate, uh, it means that the chair, as a practical matter, has thrown their support behind it, and leadership is probably in favor of it. Uh, yep. Is this likely this? Uh, long-term care bill, is it likely actually to pass the Massachusetts legislature, legislature this session and be presented to the governor? I am very optimistic. Uh, we're taking it up in the House uh, tomorrow. I actually went to a great briefing um, on it to, you know, because like after committee work, things evolve. Um, so we, we got a good, great update on it yesterday too coming to the House floor tomorrow, we've got um, this, you know, really good 
prescription cost containment bill in the Senate, what I see brewing in the new year is we often take up big topics like this in large omnibus bills. So, uh, yeah, that's what remains to be seen. Will these two bills come together in one piece of legislation that that um, will then be worked on in both chambers? Uh, you know, I think that's a great outcome. Like, let's tackle everything. In the uh, piece in the Republican newspaper, which is Mass Live today, with regard, that was reporting on the prescription drug bill that the Senate is going to take up tomorrow, mm-hmm. it says this. The bill is popular among medical professionals across the state. The Massachusetts Medical Society, comprised of some 25,000 doctors, residents, and medical students, said the bill would give Massachusetts the transparency and data to mitigate rising drug costs. Later on, it says, well, who are the opponents? And it turns out that there has been pushback largely from pharmaceutical companies and insurers. What is the political, uh, what does the political field look like in terms of the, the, the bill that will come before the long-term care bill that will come before the House uh, tomorrow? I, you know, I think that um, actually, I think it's a slightly different um, field in that there's a lot of support uh, for this long-term care bill. I mean, there is for the uh, for the prescription cost containment too. But you know, you mentioned some powerful opponents there. I actually think with long-term care, uh, you know, I think the 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 um, very few people who might oppose it would be some private management company of of long-term care facilities. I think it even like even our friends in the insurance industry would like to see more oversight in the long-term care industry. And, and when so, we're talking about long-term care, we're talking about care in facilities, we're talking about care at home. What does long-term care mean? It it means both. This bill uh, is focusing more on the facilities themselves, giving the Department of Public Health more uh, tools for regulating them. And also um, supporting, there's a whole new trend in, um, it's called like small home care, uh, you know, which is, which is more like sort of more residential settings um, and making sure that those are well regulated too. Uh, the other thing we learned in the pandemic, I think we all experienced this, uh, there, you know, we had these terrible outbreaks, you know, we know well here in Holyoke yeah, the soldiers uh, and home. in other places. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so tackling what we learned about that in two different ways, one of them is making sure all of these facilities have uh, an outbreak plan that's laid out. Um, you know, we learned lessons and let's make sure that uh, that they get perpetuated, and also making sure that there's a plan in place, be it through technology or whatever, where we don't have this terrible isolation that happened to elders in yeah. these long-term facilities. Yeah. You know, there's, but yeah, there there has to be a way that folks can connect with their loved ones. We are speaking with State Representative Patricia Duffy, representative from the 5th Hamden District. When we come back, we're going to talk about school receivership climate change legislation, and guns. We'll be right back.
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday downtown sounds? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, what they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Patricia Duffy, the, the representative for the 5th Hamden District, that's Holyoke, plus one precinct in Chicopee as well. Representative, I'd like to go through a number of topics with you if we could. First, sure. guns. We've talked about the gun bill before. Where does that stand in its legislative journey, the Massachusetts uh, gun bill? We uh, we passed it in the House, and um, this what uh, what the Senate president has said is that um, she is working on, uh, she, her, her, her team um, are working on uh, gun reform legislation of their own. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think anybody in the House has seen that yet. Uh, and we don't know which way she's going, um, if she's going to, you know, take up some of the uh, reforms that that we passed. Um, and then after yeah. the Senate acts, it'll go to a conference committee and a bill right. presumably will come out. I think State uh, Senate President Karen Spilka said sometime in the new year. I don't think she expects to take that up between now and New Year's. Uh, I, I would like to go to the climate change bill you've been working on. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Natalie Blay and I um, have been working with this incredible group of advocates uh, led by the Nature Conservancy, but including all kinds of great community uh, organizing groups, you know, folks like Neighbor to Neighbor, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's about 
making sure that when um, climate mitigation funds are are given to communities, that there's there's real engagement um, from environmental justice communities like here in Holyoke, like in Springfield, where we have huge rates of asthma because folks who live in um, folks who live in neighborhoods where they're surrounded by poverty, you know, guess what is also there? Lots of lead paint. You know, the um, the former Mount Tom coal plant, those neighborhoods were all downwind uh, from that plant. So, uh, so it's that kind of, is uh, it's making sure that the um the communities that are called environmental justice communities which is like a state recognized uh you know population is involved in how climate mitigation funds are are uh, I'm wondering representative is this the same that the sustainability and and uh equitable funding is that the same uh, Bill, is that bill the same as the petition that people generated that uh, was on the ballot in many communities? Oh, I, I'm going to be honest with you. It may have been inspired by that, but I don't actually 100% know that. It, it was not on the Holyoke ballot, um, so I'm not directly familiar with that. Okay. What year was that? Yeah, just. Uh, the last even year, whatever year that was, 22. I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 It probably was inspired by that. I'm like, I'm totally ignorant of that and I don't know. But um, we've gotten the attention of the Attorney General. She's interested in these efforts. So, um, so I'm hopeful. That's a good ally. Well, we're on this yeah. question of even years and uneven years. I guess that would be odd year elections. <laughs> Could, I, I have asked this of, I think, all the elected officials who have been on the show in the last few weeks, maybe the last month, which is what do you th- feel, think uh, about these off-year elections? Why do we have them? They have historically had very low turnout. Uh, it's not a good uh, picture for democracy. Why do we have these off-year elections, and what do you think about them, Representative Duffy? <sighs> That is such a good question, and um, I could really go either way. I mean, it's so depressing to me. Holyoke had 17% turnout for our, you know, for electing our city council. It's an incredibly important, powerful legislative body, um, and you know. I'm always talking about like, well, it's up to us to improve improve voter turnout. Um, But you know, and I, that fight should never end. We should always be doing that work. We should always be um, doing outreach and voter registration and encouraging voter turnout. But you know, we don't seem to be making a big dent in that. You know, the I'm. Let me ask you this. Uh, if you doubled the turnout in Holyoke's in the off-year elections, you would get to the magic number of one-third of the eligible voters. It's, does, we have a history. Off-year elections do not engender interest or participation. So why do we keep doing this? The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I think that's really compelling. And I, my, my, the only thing that makes me pause is... I wonder, I worry about unintended consequences. The one thing about these off-year elections is it means there is a focus 
on these seats. You know, I do worry about them getting like, you know, you have, you do everything in the even year and the ballot is three pages long and nobody even knows like, you know, what they're voting for by the time they get to the bottom of the third page. Maybe that doesn't, maybe that's okay. <laughs> but, um, that that's the one thing that gives me pause. Okay. One last topic for you. We brought this up with uh, mayor Joshua Garcia on the show yesterday. Holyoke's school system has been in receivership for eight plus years. There is a push now to say enough is enough, not only in Holyoke, but in the two other school systems in the state that are under the uh, auspices, there we go, of the state government, the Department of Education. Does Holyoke need a legislative assist in terms of getting out of receivership? And what's your position on that? Well, I'm 100% of it. You know, the school committee is telling me they're ready and to uh, be out of receivership, and I 100% back them and back that and back the mayor. Uh, and there is a piece of legislation called the Thrive Act that would get rid of um, the state power, uh, and I'm a co-sponsor of that. I testify in favor of it. Uh, we'll see what happens with that, but I don't want, you know, we don't need to wait for the legislative process. The, there's a, the state can decide uh, to to put us back under local control. Uh, those conversations have started. I'm feeling optimistic. Uh, you know, I don't think that Governor Healy is interested in running local school districts. Uh, so let's, let's take advantage of that. And we're ready. We're ready. And a great school committee. Fantastic school committee. And in terms of Holyoke taking back uh, control over its own school system. Is there, looking backwards now for a moment, is there something to point to to say whatever receivership was intended to accomplish, it has and or it won't, but the time has come? Uh, Here is an important byproduct of receivership. Actually, it was probably an impetus for receivership, I do believe our school administration is engages better with um, with Holyoke families than it did eight years ago. I think that was one shock to the system. Um, we actually were lucky that the receivers we've had have been Steve's Reich, who now runs the Salem schools, fantastic, um, and he he prioritized better communication with Holyoke families. Anthony Soto, who's in there now. Um, you know, a graduate of Holyoke Dean Tech, he also prioritizes that. And we all, I will lean on the school committee. We all need to make sure that that engagement continues. We are going to leave it there. We've been speaking with State Representative Patricia Duffy. Thank you so much for your insights and your time today, Representative. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Always great. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An advocacy group presented an alternative design for downtown Northampton's Main Street in a meeting Monday night. The group, Save Northampton Main Street, wants to make some changes to the city's original redesign plans. 
The original picture Main Street covers nearly a half a mile of Main Street, from the intersection of Elm and West Streets near Smith College to the intersection of Market and Holly Streets near the Rail Trail Bridge. Save Northampton hopes to meet with City Council on Thursday to present these changes. Property taxes are likely going up for Northampton homeowners. Single-family homeowners can expect their bills to increase by an average of $500 next year. Even though the city is planning to lower its residential tax rate, property values have risen by over 12% over the past year, resulting in the increase. Residents will see the increases on their January tax bills. The trial for murder suspect Stephen Malloy began yesterday in Hampshire Superior Court. Malloy is accused of shooting and killing Joseph Filio in December 2021 at the Randolph Place Apartments in Northampton. It was the only homicide reported in the city that year. Malloy has pled not guilty to charges of first-degree murder and possession of a firearm with prior convictions of violent crimes. Formal sessions for the Massachusetts legislature ends tomorrow, but lawmakers are still working out the details of a spending bill that would allocate more money to the state's overburdened emergency shelter system. Both the House and Senate have proposed bills that would give an additional $250 million to the program that provides shelter to families experiencing homelessness. Mostly cloudy this morning, partial sunshine this afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 22 to 28. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a little warmer, a high of 46 to 50. Sunny on Thursday in mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. The holiday season has just begun and everyone's already feeling overwhelmed. HelloFresh gets that and they're here to give you a break. You can take back time spent on meal planning because HelloFresh has it covered with over 45 options to choose from each week with recipes that suit many lifestyles. You can skip that extra trip to the supermarket too because HelloFresh delivers all the quality farm fresh ingredients you need right to your door pre-portioned and ready to cook. They also have snacks, quick breakfasts, and easy lunches to cover mealtime anytime. And you can even save money because HelloFresh is 25% cheaper than takeout. Yeah, you see what we mean? HelloFresh handles all the hard parts so you can actually enjoy cooking at home again. So this holiday season, don't stress about mealtime. Sign up for America's number one meal kit today and you'll get free breakfast for life with the code ARMSTRONGFREE at HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. That means one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. Again, it's the code ARMSTRONGFREE at HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. HelloFresh.com slash ARMSTRONGFREE. Talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. 
especially Willie. And this is indeed Talking Baseball with Sabre, Society of American Baseball Research, historian, uh, Negro League expert, author, and commentator Duke Goldman. Well, our intro song mentions from Boston to Dubuque. Let's stay with Boston for a bit if we could, please, Duke, which is... There's a new GM. Light is at the end of the tunnel. The red resurgence of the Red Sox is upon us, at least according to management. What say you? So the new GM is a gentleman named Craig Breslow, who had a degree of success um, uh, pitching for the Red Sox, um, I think about 10, 12 years ago. It's been a while. Um, he also has a, an Ivy League degree, which is something the Red Sox seems to prioritize. Um, in their front office. Yeah, I, th- I think he graduated Yale. I believe so, yeah. 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 Of course, the last guy, you know, he was set up to fail, and he did. So, you know, will Craig Breslow be able to turn around the Red Sox train? I don't know. I mean, you know, you could argue that the very fact that he is a ball player will give him some insight that the prior general manager did not have. But I really believe that... But the f- prior general manager, Craig... Uh, 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 Chaim Bloom. Chaim Bloom, sorry. Um, uh, put together a marvelous, competitive, winning team in Tampa on almost the lowest payroll in baseball. It wasn't like he didn't know the game. He may not have been played, but he, he did know the ga- he does know the game. No, but he was brought in to reduce the payroll, send Mookie Betts on his way, and rebuild the farm system. And, by the way, win at the same time. And, you know... I, I don't think that's a very workable model in baseball 2023. Duke, could I just circle back to what you said before? Because I've been interested in this. Is it really uh, an important asset? I don't, I don't know how to even phrase the question that you were a player before when we're talking about a good general manager. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, uh, well, Brian Cashman, the general manager of the Yankees, was not a player before. Of course, I wouldn't anymore call him a good general manager because lately they're just mailing it in and they don't seem to think that much change is necessary. But, you know, he was the engineer, the architect of four World Series championships in five years back in the 90s. Um, so, they, you know, there have been general managers who've done great jobs who've never stepped on the field. I think it matters more in the the manager's position than it does in the general manager's position. The general manager is responsible ultimately for picking the team, making the trades, doing the drafting, staying with the players during their development in the minor leagues or not. Is that separation real for the Red Sox between the manager and the general manager, or does the manager have a lot to say about that? Well, you know, th- th- baseball is changing. The, the delineation of the positions has, has become a lot more blurry. Um, back when, the manager made virtually all the on-field decisions. Not anymore. Now there's this big-time analytics department, and they weigh in and tell the manager who to play and, you know, when they, the batter should be swinging. And um, I think the managers have, in many ways, less input than they used to have, especially on-field decisions. Off-field decisions, 
I don't think they've ever had a tremendous amount of input, with some exceptions, when you have a manager who has a very high profile, long record of experience, and then they have some power in the front office. It also depends on their relationship with the ownership. And, you know, I agree with a lot of Red Sox Nation. What I'm hearing is many of us think it's time for John Henry to pack up his bags and go somewhere else. And, you know, he can concentrate on his Liverpool team and his Pittsburgh Penguins team, and maybe, maybe he needs to leave baseball. You know, he had a good run. They won four World Series championships. Maybe it's time for someone else. Craig Craig Breslow, I should point out, I'm looking it up as we speak, uh, looking up his statistics. He had a losing record as a pitcher over some, uh, over a decade, but he did have a very low Earn run average actually. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, he was he he was a pretty good pitcher, and he had one or two really good years. I think I I don't have it in front of me. I think one of them was in a championship year for the Red Sox. So um, you know he he contributed to that team, and I think to the degree that he knows the culture, even though the culture has changed, he certainly played under the same ownership. That may build a better relationship than say bringing Bloom in from Tampa Bay, where he operated in, in a very different system. The other thing that I've read about the the value of having been a player is not so much in the assessment of talents, but the compatibility of talents. Like somebody who's been on, in, an, in an infielder knows, you know, this second baseman doesn't move well to his left for putting him with the shortstops to fill that gap. That sort of stuff, um, I think, is useful if you've been on the field for a long sure. time. Sure. And I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I mean, I think he has a degree of insight that a non-player would not have. Will that translate into the Red Sox coming back and being a perennial contender? Um, you know, could, but I, I'm not I'm not convinced. I mean, you know, he, he's going to have to prove himself. And, you know, uh, as we know, Red Sox nation is not very patient, and the Red Sox have been pretty poor the last few years. So he's going to be expected to win now. Um, uh, uh, Bloom does deserve some credit for building up the farm system. The Red Sox have some good prospects in the pipeline. They did add a few good pieces last year. They have the same problem that almost every other team has, which is a lack of good starting pitching. And we'll see what they can do. And what about the Yankees? Is it time to replace Brian Cashman with Bill Newman, you think? Yeah, I think it's time to replace Brian Cashman with pretty much anybody. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to take that as a vote of support. It's <laughs> kind of the best I can get Pretty out much of anybody. It. Well, but you actually point out a really interesting aspect of baseball, which is also true in many ways for football. And given what happening, what's happening with the Pats now, I think this is worthy of a moment to focus on, which is that in the stands, say there are 40,000 people, uh, actually it's fewer than that because it's over the capacity of Fenway Park, but there are, let's say, 30,000 people at a Boston Red Sox game and 29,999 of them think they could do as good a job of the man- as the manager. So when the manager doesn't do what they wanted or doesn't win, uh, his head, someone's head, goes to the chopping block. And that's that's absolutely true, and I couldn't agree more. And everybody thinks they know how to, you know, run a baseball team. Well, they don't, right? I mean, you know, most of them are deep into the suds by that point, and they're pretty convinced that <laughs> they, they, they could do much better. Well, no, they couldn't do much better. They, they really have, haven't a clue. Having said that, you know, you point out Bill Belichick, and, you know, people are now calling for his head and talking about how, you know, uh, the Patriots' ownership is going to have to figure out a graceful way to tell them it's time to go. Sometimes, you know, 20-plus years of a regime, you know, you, you start to get you know, stale and stagnant. It's time and to Bel- bring in new people. But Belichick owns what happens to the to the 
Patriots because he, in fact, operates the as a manager in baseball and the general manager. He has a lot to say about who they draft, who they trade for, what they spend, and all of that. So he really is running the team as a practical matter. As Bill Parcells said, he not only cooks the meal, he buys the groceries. Well, but I would say Brian Cashman has significant input into the Yankees. Um, you know, Hal Steinbrenner is not really a baseball man who's the owner of the Yankees. And he's run this team since the mid-90s, and he was an assistant GM before that. He's a lifetime employee, more or less, and the team is not going anywhere. We are talking with Duke Goldman. This is Talking Baseball with the Duke. And when we come back, as long as we're on the Red Sox, what I want to know is, will the Red Sox pay up and capture the best baseball player in the world no. who's, who is a free agent. <laughs> oh, well, we, we, we spoil that tease, but we'll, we'll use it anyway on the other side. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready-to-go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground-up flour and grains, stone-milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Here's another remarkable success story from QC Kinetics. This one from Chad, who hurt his knee at the gym one day, and it just kept on hurting for months. From my high school football and wrestling days, I already had a little bit of damage in there, but this just sent it over the edge. Chad tried traditional treatments with no improvement when he turned to the non-surgical regenerative treatments at QC Kinetics. It was really fascinating how they did their work, and the science behind it was very intriguing, and it works. Extracting the cure out of my own body blew my mind. It's like I'm brand new again. It was fantastic. That's because the QC Kinetics natural biologic treatments use your body's own healing power to restore damaged tissue in your hips, shoulders, back, and knees, providing long-lasting relief. Now I'm back at the gym. I'm 100% feeling great. If you're tired of suffering with pain from arthritis or injury, call QC Kinetics now for a free consultation. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. This holiday season, Capital One reminds you to give yourself the gift of 1.5% cash back with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Can I earn 1.5% cash back on birds? Birds? What if you sent your true love to turtle doves plus a partridge in a pear tree? Sure, but why would anyone want that? The song was very convincing. Earn 1.5% cash back on all your holiday purchases with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. This is Talking Baseball with the Duke. And just before we left for a commercial, I asked you, Duke, will the Red Sox pay up to sign the best player in the game who is now available as a free agent? And before we could even hit the off button, you answered, but tell us why and tell us why Otani matters to the game so much. Well, 
I guess I'll start with what Otani is. Otani is the player that Babe Ruth never was. Babe Ruth never really was a reg- taking a regular turn in the starting rotation and playing games in between, at least not for a full season. Um, Otani has now done that for several seasons where he, he didn't play in the field, but he DH'd in between his taking of a regular turn in the pitching rotation, and he was outstanding in both of them. So, you know, when he Play, does... Playing for a team, we should point out to our non-baseball fans, playing for a team that had no chance to get to the playoffs. Correct, which is why he's moving on largely. I mean, I think he's going to move on because the Angels just haven't done it. It's hard to imagine, but it tells you a lot about baseball. The Angels had arguably the two best players in the game over the last five or six years, the two best offensive players. Uh, 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 Otani, who was also a pitcher, and Mike Trout, and they have not played a single playoff game during that period of time. Because it's a team game. Because it's a team game. If you had, you know, the, the, you know, let's create the imaginary team with Michael Jordan and LeBron James on it, let's say. Um, you know, the rest of us here sitting in the studio could probably join them on the team and we'd do pretty well, you know, because two players like that could do amazing things. In baseball, two players, you know, they can't win games by themselves. They can win an occasional game, but they're, they're, they're not going to dominate. I Otani, also read though, that... that, that uh, the Anaheim area where he lives is a very heavily Asian-occupied area, and that might be a factor in whether he leaves or not. I don't think he wants to leave. I mean, for one thing, the West Coast is a lot closer to Japan, so that makes a difference. Um, I think he likes the weather out there. He likes the quote-unquote climate, you know, which is that it's a little more chill. It's a little more mellow. I mean, I, I don't know that he wants to have microphones thrust in his face like they, you know, it would happen in New England. You know, the, you know, the first day out that he got struck out three times, people would be booing him. I don't. I I don't think the Red Sox are going to spend that kind of money. You know, there's just no way that they are really going to be, you know, in, in competition for him. Similar to what happened um, when the Mets did not get Craig Council, who was recently signed by the Chicago Cubs as their new manager, away from the Milwaukee Brewers. The Mets were never really in competition. He didn't want to leave the Midwest, so he moved 90 miles away from Milwaukee and got, uh, you know, the the top managerial contract. Um, he was using the Mets to help, you know, gain leverage. I think Otani's agent is going to do the same thing and use teams in the East Coast, like the Red Sox, to try to bump up the price. American League MVP: Otani, Corey Seager, or the kid from. Texas world champion Texas Rangers. I, I still think it's going to be Otani. I mean, I, I don't see how it could be anybody else. Yeah. Okay. Buzz has brought up the improbable, almost oxymoronic uh, phrase, the world champion Texas Rangers. Uh, okay. Explain this to us, please, in, well, in ways that I can understand. How did they become the world champion? They didn't even have a winning season. They weren't even very good. No, they did have a winning season. Barely. No, they won 90 games. They, they were legitimate. It was Arizona who they were playing that was not oh, legitimate. Oh, you're, you're, you're right. There was a team that won 56% of its games against the well, team. Well, and Arizona was outscored. They should have had a losing record for the season. And so. I just want to add, I just want to remind you, last time we spoke about this, you, you said what's really infor- unfortunate is the playoff Format guarantees it's not necessarily the best team. It's the hottest yes. team. Yes, the, the hottest team, the team that gets the breaks. 
Um, you know, you've got too many teams in there who, you know, once once the regular season is over and a team gets to the playoffs, you know, everything else goes away. They start from scratch, you know, and that's what happened. And that's happened now several years where the teams that are clearly there were 300 win teams this year. The Baltimore Orioles, the L.A. Dodgers, and the Atlanta Braves. And the ta- None of them even made Bay. it to the championship In Tampa Bay. Didn't Tampa well, Bay? Well, Tampa Bay won like 98 they games. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they were the best the team in the first half. But yeah, the best teams did not even get into the championship round, much less the World Series. So guess what? What happened in the ratings for baseball? I know. I know. Can I? Can I can, yes. Yes, yes. In the back of the class. <laughs> the ra- Newman. The, the ratings were put, how to put this, dismal. Dismal, the worst ever. All right. I watched it. It was a good World Series. I wanted Texas to win. Texas is, you know, now finally, you know, they've been in existence since 1961 when they were the Washington Senators. This was their fir- first World Series. So now another team has won a World Series. Now we have left the Seattle Mariners, who have not even been to the World Series in their existence. But so I, I was happy to see Texas win. Bruce, Bruce Bochy is a good manager. Um, but and most importantly, George Bush doesn't own the team anymore. And George Bush does not own the team anymore. But he was quite pleased, I, I would say, that his team won. Yeah, I mean, he got to leave. The city uh, paid for a twenty million dollars stadium for him uh, because he was such a worthy uh, anti-poverty project. Uh, anyway, I, I'll, I, I watched parts of four of those games. I missed the best game, the eleventh inning game one. But um, that kid, Marcus Simeon, he's a real player, I think. Um, oh, Marcus Semyon's a real player. He's he's not even really a kid. I mean, he's been around for a few years, and he's he's an excellent middle infielder. He's a you know multi-purpose player. Corey Seager is amazing. Really, um, I mean, he missed about forty games, and he had MVP level performance. Um, Adolis Garcia had a great series. Texas is a good team. You know, they they were a worthy team, and I, they kept winning away from home. Right, right. So, you know, it was fine. I mean, for a baseball fan, for a hardcore fan, sure, it was a great World Series. For everybody else, there were, for most of us, there wasn't a team to root for, and maybe even more importantly, there wasn't a team to root against, right? I love watching the Yankees in the World Series because I want them to lose. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. How do you feel about this, Duke? (laughs) Hey, listen, I want to go back to one thing you said, which is that the regular season... 162 games has less importance now because most of the good teams, not all, get into the playoffs, and that's what really counts because everyone's after that World Series ring, making baseball a lot more like hockey or basketball uh, where there are seasons that go on, but then really no one cares very much about what happens in the season. You won the National Hockey League East Division Conference, or uh, same thing in some ways for football. The, 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 all of these games during the season just don't amount to a hill of beans at the end of the day. Well, the owners see revenue streams, and they want to make money now. So what do they see? Well, if we have more and more playoff teams, more and more teams will be in contention, we'll sell more and more tickets, and you know what? We have more playoff games to sell to the networks. Notice, by the way, during the World Series, did you discover all of all of did everybody realize that, you know, there were no World Series games on Sunday? Why? I know. I know. <laughs> yes, in the back of the class. Yeah. 
Because they didn't want to compete with football? Yes. I mean, what does that tell you? That tells you a mid-season game between two non-contending football players draws a bigger TV audience than a World Series Game 7. All right. That makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up. That just makes me mad. Okay. You just made Buzz mad. Can you make really Buzz mellow? Think. Can you turn, make, turn Buzz into mellow? Why the, why the rest of this hot stove league is actually going to be pretty darn interesting? Um. It'll be interesting to see who, you know, Otani goes to. Uh, you know, I actually don't think it's a very exciting free agent class this year. Cody Bellinger is on the market, and he's a pretty good center fielder and had a great season for the Cubs. Uh, Blake Snell had a great season pitching. There's a few decent names. Uh, Matt Chapman, third baseman, is, is the hottest third baseman on the market. He's a real good fielder. Overall... Not not terribly, terribly exciting. Red Sox aren't going to go after another third baseman, are they? I don't think so. I mean, they've got one. You know, he makes a lot of fielding errors, but, you know. Yeah, he also gets paid the $30 million a yes, year Yes, he does. And he's a good hitter. We're talking Devers, of course. But, you know, I, I don't know if the Red Sox are going to do all that much in the postseason. Um in the in the hot stove league. It'll be interesting to see. I, I still look forward to baseball. I still love baseball. I still think it's the best sport there is. But most Americans don't agree. Duke Oldman, thanks so much for your insights. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. She's just mad about me. They call me mellow yellow. Quite rightly. They call me mellow yellow. Quite rightly. They call me mellow yellow. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Spillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. WHMP Northampton and W... Hi, and welcome to Talk to Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And, and that is Hey Schoolgirl by Tom and Jerry, who you might know better as Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> is that true? Tom and Jerry were Simon and Garfunkel? Yes. See, I hear Tom and Jerry, and I think, you know, the cartoon characters. Me too. So I didn't realize there was artists there. Me too. I think of a cat and a mouse, right? I'm going to recheck this as we speak, but I'm 99.99% sure. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, now that my breath has been taken away by that factoid, I do remember Tom and Jerry, the singers, but um, this is the time of month I, I, I always appreciate because um, our future rests in our children and our education is the foundation that they could build a lifetime on and with us to talk about our children and our future is Todd Gazda. Thank you so much for joining us again, Todd. It's my pleasure. 
So Natalie Blay, Joe Comerford, Senator Paul Mark, they've all been talking to us for some time about rural schools and the particular needs of rural schools that can be differentiated from our large urban cousins and their needs. And I know that there's a bill that's percolating right now that you, as the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, you've been paying careful attention to. I have. Uh, you know, it, we're in a situation where rural schools are really feeling a pinch much more uh, than even other schools across the Commonwealth, given, uh, you know, certain challenges, uh, you know, kind of inherent upon being a rural school. Uh, you know, there, there's a beauty uh, to a rural school. There's a sense of community. Uh, there's it's, it's really amazing to see how communities really those schools become the focal point uh, of everything that happens in some of those small communities uh, so that the uh, elementary school will hold a holiday show. And in some of our small towns, the whole town turns out for it, not just parents and grandparents with kids in the schools. Uh, and so it's, they're a really important uh, kind of hub for our rural communities uh, to help keep the town together and to keep its unique identity. Uh, and so, I mean, that is the, the element of it that, you know, there's, that's just beautiful. But with that beauty comes very specific challenges. There are. And, you know, the, the primary two are, which aren't, which are challenges for every school uh, these days in the Commonwealth, which is finances and staffing. But the location of rural schools makes it a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, we have less of a candidate pool out here, just simple demographic numbers. We have less candidates to hire from out here in Western Mass, and the distances are much greater that, that people have to travel. And so that creates a challenge when, you know, you have a math teacher position opens up a gateway, um, finding qualified teachers uh, to be part of that pool. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times rural schools are taking a little bit of a chance when they hire somebody uh, because maybe they don't have as much experience. Uh, and so I mean, it's not necessarily just experience, but other, the other elements. And so sometimes that works out amazingly, uh, but sometimes it can lead to turnover as well. So there is a bill that's talking about uh, up to $60 million in uh, codifying the, the rural school aid fund putting money in the fund to help rural districts. Is that right? That is correct. And basically, it's House Bill uh, 2567 uh, and Senate Bill 2388. And they're an act to provide a sustainable future for rural schools. The bill itself is really broken down into three different segments. The first segment applies to all public schools. And so there's you know a little something for everybody in that part of the bill. And that really focuses on transportation, um, particularly with respect to special education um, and also special education to, you know, help create a more equitable funding system for special education to mitigate some of the ups and downs and costs for school districts year to year. So if we could, let's just rewind it up the tape by a little bit. Yeah, because transportation is, I mean, it's always a problem wherever the school is located, but in rural schools, Sometimes kids have to ride great distances, and it just costs a lot of money to get kids from, uh, you know, their home to 
school. Uh, it's a different kind of problem. It does. It is. And it's a really a, a, a kind of two-part problem for school districts uh, in you know these rural areas such as us out here in West, Western Mass. And that is that, first of all, Again, demographics, finding bus drivers uh, creates challenges. That's a challenge everywhere across the country right now, but particularly in our urban uh, in our rural uh, school districts. And so the cost of transportation is also very high proportionate to the rest of the budget for those rural districts. Now, back in the 60s, when uh, the legislator wanted, legislature wanted to encourage school districts to regionalize, to make you know things run more efficiently, they felt uh, they said that they would they they committed to a hundred percent reimbursement for regional transportation, subject to appropriation. That kicker line that's always you know are often in uh, appropriations lines. So that is, since 1966 or so, uh, it's been very few times it's actually been funded to a hundred percent. Maybe it'll hit 60, 75, 80, even 90. Uh, but it's n- not always been to 100%. Ty Gaza, yeah. isn't there a state law that says that school systems have to provide transportation if the student lives more than two miles from the school? Or is that my my memory f- is failing me? Under, and I'm trying to, it's under seventh grade. Uh, that is true. Uh, over that, school districts aren't required to provide transportation, but under, yes. Um, and that's, you know, but... Two miles from school, you in some of our rural communities, you may only hit 10 of the houses uh, because everything's so spread out. The transportation segment of this bill, though, re- one of the things that it really looks at is school districts that uh, can no longer meet the needs of a special needs student in district and need to send that student out of district. The cost for that alone can be substantial, and that's addressed in um, – another section of the bill. I, I think we had seven students this past uh, town meeting that uh, in our funding for our schools. Seven students, and I think it was something like $9,000 a student to uh, get these students who had particular needs, special needs, to another school district other than Mohawk. It was very expensive. It, little feeder buses with one student in it and that sort of thing. And actually, the $9,000 cost is pretty good. Uh, I've seen that up twenty twenty five thousand. 25000 and it's nine thousand dollars, Buzz, for the cost of schooling, or it's it's per nine thousand for the transportation per student for the transportation only for the transportation. Not, Correct. You also are paying the funds follow the students right. when they leave the district. So in addition, there's the loss of what twenty. Twenty twenty five thousand dollars on top of the nine thousand. Twenty twenty five thousand would be a really good deal. We're talking right now. Uh, you know, cost of out of different district placements probably range i would say somewhere from 45 up to 300,000 for the heavy needs residential so you're probably looking if you're sending a kid out of district you're going to figure on 55 60,000 dollars for the year um it would be just you know a kind of ballpark figure uh but it really depends on the program it can be higher than that uh it's really very much lower than that so what will the rural schools bill do to to take some of the sting out of that. Right now, the state reimburses through its circuit breaker funds for, I think in FY23, I think the cap was just under $50,000. So the school district has to pay the first fifty, But after $50,000, the state would reimburse 75% of those costs. 
But that's a really important program. And the reason it's an important program, and I appreciate your perspective on this, Todd, mm. is that it takes away a lot of the disincentive for school systems to try to keep a kid in the system uh, and provide as best they can. Uh, there's a if they have to, if they in, will only be charged fifty. I don't use only uh, mm. so, some somewhat uh, advisedly, but only fifty thousand dollars. At least it's capped at that. Then a school system can say, yes, this is a child who needs full time residential care for their education, and and we're going to make sure they get it because fifty thousand is our cap, and the state will pay the rest, and that equalizes things. It seems to me it only pays seventy five percent of the rest right now. Um, so in other words, if it was 75,000, the school district would have to pay 50 and then about 20%, uh, of, uh, or $20,000, uh, of the remainder. So, but the, the difference is a couple of things. One, uh, a lot of districts are actually doing the opposite. They're moving, uh, their programs in house and actually hiring teachers and creating their own pro programs in a lot of our suburban communities. The reason being, they can hire a teacher and a para and keep three kids in the district. They're actually saving money. But the other element of it is these are, as a superintendent, these are our kids. Uh, so when I was a superintendent, I wanted to keep them in district because then they could still be included as part of our school community to the greatest extent possible that they could be successful in that. And so when you send a kid out of district, they, they're no longer a tight part of your school community and they become part of another school district. And so I saw it as a twofold thing. One, I wanted to keep our kids with us if we could meet their needs. With their friends. Correct. And uh, it would, over time, save the district money. And so, you know, 50000 even even if it's only 50000 that adds up pretty quick. Todd Gasset, do you use suburban synonymous with rural? No, most definitely not. Rural has a very specific def definition with uh, number of students per. I think it, it's set. At, I think it's thirty-five students per square mile. Uh, you have to be less than that in order to be considered a rural district, uh, and so that's one of the kickers. And then I think the other thing was under uh, under fifty percent of the you know poverty level for the state or the average uh, you know income for the state is what it was. So, I mean, so regional tra transportation is huge. When you have to send a kid out of district, you're going to end up paying a lot of money for that. You, know, you may be able to put a couple kids on the bus and help mitigate that cost over a couple of kids, but still the cost is substantial for our rural, rural you know, districts. In these days when we uh, sort of population has shrunk somewhat and it's aged somewhat, there are fewer, ch in a lot of districts in western Massachusetts, there are fewer kids um, per school. And... Uh, as a result of having fewer kids, it's, it gets more, there's no economies of scale. It's more and more expensive. And a lot of parents, uh, when it comes time to, hey, why don't we close an elementary school or two and shrink, they don't want their kids riding on the bus for an hour each way because they live in Heath and the school is going to be in Ashfield and mm -hmm. they just don't want to see their kids riding that much. It's really a problem. It really is. I mean, taking Gateway for an example, and I often use Gateway as an example because I was a student there as a uh, Gateway Regional High School. Correct. Uh, I was a student there in the '70s and '80s, uh, and then was a teacher and principal up there. And it's a, it's one of our most rural communities. Uh, when I graduated from Gateway in 1988, 
there was I, my class at 112, and there was probably about 550 to 600 students all totaled 9 through 12. Right now, Gateway High School is down to about 163, 64 students. So total. Total in the high schools, 9 through 12. And so you look at how that student population has shrunk. With, those, with the student population shrinking, that means money from the state is reduced. So how do you adapt And you still that? have this very large building. Correct. To have to maintain. The, exactly. And well, there's that teachers' was... unions, which protects teachers as well. They should be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and class size shrinks. Uh, in some ways, it's a good thing, but in terms of affordability, it sure doesn't. Well, it ends up limiting the amount of elective offerings you can have, uh, and so you got to <laughs> cut back, uh, kind of, uh, you know, you kind of cut the limbs off to keep the body healthy. Kind I of thing. I want my kid to have AP calculus, but we can't afford to do it right now. And that could be one of the instances, although the rural schools are getting very creative with doing things with distance learning or virtual learning to help supplement. Um, They're also doing really creative things with project-based and service learning opportunities uh, that they're building in and often getting money through grants. But it's the declining student population creates a financial challenge for those schools, but that's only part of it. It's also the fact that it, there is little to no industry in many of our hill towns. Now, and this hasn't always been the case. I can remember, again, back in the late 70s when Bendix was in Chester. Uh, when that closed, uh, there was a number of families that lost jobs because they worked there. So that hurts. The lack of industry means that the cost of those schools are supported almost exclusively on property taxes, which puts it back onto our aging population in the hill towns. We are talking to Executive Director Todd Gazda of the Collaborative for Educational Services. We're talking about the bill, the Rural School Aid Bill, that uh, Representative Natalie Blay and others have uh, proposed. It's percolating in the legislature. I want to talk about regionalization a little bit more with Todd. Mm. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Are you exploring the next step for you or a loved one? Join the vibrant, welcoming Rockridge Retirement Community. Moving to Rockridge is a chance to make new friends, live in bright, spacious apartments, enjoy farm-to-table food, activities, and trips to downtown Northampton and other fun places. Sign on before November 30th and get 30 days free and a waiver of the community fee. For more information, call 413-586-2902 or visit rockridgema.org. Rockridge Community, with everything that matters. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are talking with Todd Gazda of the Collaborative for Educational Services, and we're talking about uh, a House bill and a Senate bill that, to provide a, well, sustainable future for rural schools, which has such a huge impact on our communities. Out here in western Massachusetts, I know that most communities, about 50% of their budget is for their schools, and enrollment is going down, and it's a lot of frustration. So these bills, Todd Gazda, are intended to fix that. Part of these bill, this bill, I'm sorry, the proposals, involve regionalization. We're all familiar with regional school districts. What do these bills do that we're not doing now? It establishes a, a department within DESE who specialize in rural... DESE being uh, the Department of... Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to specialize in regionalization, to help give support to communities that want to explore this option. Uh, it also sets... Um, so if a... Uh, school district or if a number of say five towns want to regionalize or two regional districts want to combine uh, it provides for an additional payment of $200 per student during the first three years of that regionalization process uh, and that's another one um, you know it it builds in certain financial kickers um, and incentives uh, for uh, kind of towns to consider regionalization. But we have all these regional school districts, so what regionalization do we want to promote? I think what they're really looking at is the combination of re regional school districts into larger regional school districts. So, you know, something like you saw in Southern Berkshire, uh, where the attempt was made to combine two of the districts in the Southern Berkshire region into one larger district. Um, now, that didn't end up passing, um, and so they're going to remain separate, but that's kind of what the, the is being encouraged uh, by the state. At a time when we're worried about democracy, uh, our show yesterday, we talked a lot about democracy and uh, home rule. Um, at the same time, we're talking about regionalization in a way that sort of, uh, you know, be, be, every town is its own town, has its own character, has its own set of aspirations, and has its own kids that it's sending to school. So what, the more you regionalize, the more the character of that town becomes, I think, blurrier, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I don't know about blurrier. It does, it would change things, particularly at the high school level. Uh, and in particular, if you're looking to, you know, combine, say, two high schools into one centrally located regional high school. You know, a lot of times in regional districts, the elementary schools remain and the communities really focus around those elementary schools. It gets really heated uh, if you talk about closing elementary schools. Um, and so, you know, that creates a, a little bit of a challenge there. Um, 
So I don't know that it, it does change the dynamics within communities, and there is a loss of control. And, and in Massachusetts, uh, we are strong believers in local control, particularly for public education. So uh, does a collaborative for educational services have a position on these rural school bills? You know, I, I think in general that I'm I'm in favor of this bill. It is, you know, it's it would offer $60 million, and that's the really big part of this bill. It offers $60 million uh, to uh, support rural schools. You know, it started a couple of years ago at about $5 million. It went up to $7.5 million. It's up to, I think, $15 million. Um, in the most recent iteration, and that really helps, and that's really providing st- some stability for our rural schools. But the challenge is, it's every year it's subject to appropriation, and so some districts are reluctant to put it, you know, and budget against it in their operating budget because they're not, they can't trust that it's going to be there from year to year. And this, by putting sixty million in. Uh, would provide a little bit more stability and a little bit you know, more that superintendents and school committees could count on when creating their budget for these rural communities. And what can listeners do to find out more about the bills or to express their opinion about it? Uh, you know, it's reach out to your legislators. Uh, you know, let them know you're in support of this. Uh, every little bit helps. Our uh, legislative delegation out here in Western Mass uh, is, you know, obviously it's it was brought forward by two of them, uh, Rep. Uh, Blay and Rep. Uh, and Senator Comerford were the two uh, sponsors for this bill, but others have signed on. So uh, let them know that this is something we want to consider. Todd Gazda, there was a significant ed reform bill that passed the legislature not too many years ago, which changed the funding formula from the state. And I'm wondering how this bill to support and defray costs of rural school districts affects or has or doesn't have some uh, effect on that funding formula. That was uh, the Student Opportunity Act, and that largely benefited you know, 96 school districts out of the... I think it's 251 or something like that across the Commonwealth uh, got 80 percent of those of that money. And so many of the the urban districts did very well because they had been underfunded for years. And even educators who knew their districts weren't going to get a lot out of the Student Opportunity Act advocated in favor of it because they knew it was important for our gateway cities. However, looking at uh, around here, we didn't see a lot of funding out of the Student Opportunity Act for our rural schools. And so this rural school bill is kind of like an addendum to that uh, to help fill that gap. You know, the affluent communities can afford to pay for their schools. Now the Student Opportunity Act has taken care of the urban communities and those ones that have been historically underfunded. And so the gap is us, is, you know, some of the smaller suburban districts and the rural schools. And this will help fill some of those, that gap. Gap are us. I love it. <laughs> Maybe that's the name of the bill. So, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. I know I'm going to be reading a whole lot more about uh, this act, this proposal, this bill to provide a sustainable future for rural schools. It impacts on so many of our lives so uh, hugely, really, and our and our tax base as well. Thank you for joining us again. I look forward to next month, Todd. As do I. All right. We're going to be right back. We have Sarah Marshall coming into the studio. She's a newly elected Amherst School Committee member uh, that uh, 
Hammer School's been on our minds for uh, a lot of this year, certainly since May. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An advocacy group presented an alternative design for downtown Northampton's Main Street in a meeting Monday night. The group, Save Northampton Main Street, wants to make some changes to the city's original redesign plans. The original picture Main Street covers nearly a half a mile of Main Street, from the intersection of Elm and West Streets near Smith College to the intersection of Market and Holly Streets near the Rail Trail Bridge. Save Northampton hopes to meet with City Council on Thursday to present these changes. Property taxes are likely going up for Northampton homeowners. Single-family homeowners can expect their bills to increase by an average of $500 next year. Even though the city is planning to lower its residential tax rate, property values have risen by over 12% over the past year, resulting in the increase. Residents will see the increases on their January tax bills. The trial for murder suspect Stephen Malloy began yesterday in Hampshire Superior Court. Malloy is accused of shooting and killing Joseph Filio in December 2021 at the Randolph Place Apartments in Northampton. It was the only homicide reported in the city that year. Malloy has pled not guilty to charges of first-degree murder and possession of a firearm with prior convictions of violent crimes. Formal sessions for the Massachusetts legislature ends tomorrow, but lawmakers are still working out the details of a spending bill that would allocate more money to the state's overburdened emergency shelter system. Both the House and Senate have proposed bills that would give an additional $250 million to the program that provides shelter to families experiencing homelessness. Mostly cloudy this morning, partial sunshine this afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 22 to 28. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a little warmer, a high of 46 to 50. Sunny on Thursday in mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. The Inuit catch their own and hang it in the sun to dry. New Yorkers have it smoked on bagels over the Sunday Times. When you order salmon at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, it's Faroe Island salmon. You know where the Faroe Islands are, halfway between Iceland and Norway. The ocean waters are clean and Arctic cold. Try Paul and Elizabeth's Faroe Island salmon with miso scallion butter. Order your salmon scampi. Add grilled salmon to any of Paul and Elizabeth's salads. There are so many ways to have salmon at Paul and Elizabeth's. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. 
That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray on The Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. Um, Since the spring, we have been uh, focused. A lot of our attention has been um, directed towards the Amherst schools, the Amherst Regional School Districts, the uh, and Pelham, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, the the district itself. Uh, And it all arose from uh, an article that was written by students um, in the graphic that um, alleged uh, discriminatory treatment for trans and LGBTQ kids. Um, parents have been involved in a controversy. Five, total of five school committee members resigned before their term was up and vacated their seats. There were temporary people. A superintendent uh, went on a, uh, a health break and then came back and resigned. A, an assistant superintendent actually has filed suit claiming that she was a victim of discriminatory practices. Um, with us today, I'm really glad to meet Sarah Marshall. Congratulations, Sarah Marshall. You won Thank you. Uh, a seat in the, on the school district uh, uh, committee, school committee. And um, wow, you've got your work cut out for you, Sarah Marshall. We all, we all do. So when you first came in, we said, do we say congratulations or condolences? What is it? <laughs> I think what we say is thank you for being willing to help our children and our future. So thank, thank you. you for thank that. You. I'm happy to do it. So. so what are your priorities once you are sworn in as an incoming school committee member in the wake of this uh, turmoil that the school, certainly the, the committee, has been in since the spring? What, sure. are, your, what are your highest priorities? Uh-huh. My three highest priorities, I think they're shared by the current and, and incoming uh, school committee members, are to hire a superintendent who can move our district forward, um, can support all our policies and values wholeheartedly, um, and can, um, can be a leader, can be a real <coughs> educational leader for the, for the community, both Amherst, because I have been elected to the Amherst School Committee, but all of those members also sit on the Regional School Committee. Um, so that's one, hiring a, a, a superintendent. Um, secondly, uh, we need to prepare budgets for both the elementary schools in Amherst and the regional schools for the middle and high school. Um, and those are due in the spring. And I expect that the current committees are, are um, starting that work or maybe in, in process, but that's going to have to be uh, finished and taken to the, submitted to the appropriate legislative bodies. And that's gonna be a tough process. I think we all know that funding source, some funding sources are um, no longer available, and it's it's going to be tough. So, superintendent, uh, budget, and then um, demonstrating through my own work and and the committee's work um, to the public that they can have faith that we are trying to do the right thing, we want to do the right thing, 
We want to be open. Um, we will share what information we can share. Oh, transparency um, is one of the most yes, priorities. Yes, but we also, <laughs> school committees and schools themselves are obliged to follow privacy laws, both for students and for employees. So um, the public may want to know more information than they can, the, at least the school committee can legally give them. So so it's a fine line, and I understand the frustration. But With the, the, the uh, long-awaited report sure. about the incidents, which, which gave rise to a lot of right. the turmoil we yes. led with, yes. uh, in fact, had to be sanitized be to protect certain personnel rights. Sure, yeah. sure, and, and student rights. I should have started with this question. Do you have students in the schools right now? No longer. My daughter graduated from Amherst Regional High School a year and almost a half ago. So I've just finished uh, about 11 years as a parent and a volunteer and a uh, watcher of school committee meetings, especially during the pandemic. Well, um, after the election, I looked, I see that you, um, you were a very high vote getter in the election. I, I think you were the second highest I was. Getter. I was. I'm still pinching myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you must uh, you must be known uh, to people in the school community. It, it seems like a lot of people wanted Sarah Marshall to be on the board. I was I'm very honored by that vote turnout. I was certainly prepared to lose. I had no idea really what to expect. Dan Torres, you're an Amherst uh, yeah resident, so so Sarah, I wanted to ask you that. And also a product of the Amherst <laughs> School. <laughs> That's right. But yeah. I won't ask if you voted for me. Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to say that on air? I don't know. <laughs> sure, I did. Um, but uh, here's my big question for you that I've heard from talking to a lot of the former um, members of the school board is that the big task ahead for the new school committee in Amherst is the budget. And I kind of wanted to get your understanding of what you're facing. You've said here there's going to be some hard decisions. From my understanding from talking to people that they face a dire budget situation. Yes. And I don't want to give out exact figures, but I hear about ranges from a deficit of about a million to about two million, and nobody knows where it's going to fall on that. Maybe the town will come in with some one-time funding, but unlikely. Um, so I guess my question is, what kind of budget situation are, uh, do you expect once you um, start work? Yeah, I expect it will be. I try not to use the word dire, um, but it is going to be very tough. And people have been using the phrase fiscal cliff. Our schools are, you know, coming about to fall off a, a fiscal cliff. Uh, I think the biggest loss of funding is the um, pandemic-related uh, funding provided by the federal government. And that ARP. is ESSER. ESSER. ESSER, yes, ESSER. about to be exhausted, or it is exhausted. Um I can't say I have a sense yet of how the deficit is going to be sort of distributed between the regional schools and the elementary schools. I don't know yet. Um, but just yesterday evening, I was at the, um, in uh, the town room at Amherst Town Hall to hear the presentation um, from town staff about the financial indicators, what they see come you know what it's looking like maybe for the next fiscal year yeah and if i just may mm -hmm. follow up yeah uh, i remember watching uh a school committee in may uh, former superintendent michael morris yes. talking about this very word that you said fiscal cliff yes. is upon us for next year because because of the COVID funding mm -hmm. it's been able to cover up and i think a bigger issue that is happening in amherst schools and i'd love for you to address this is 
how does Amherst attract more uh, families to move into town? Because if you can have more people of that age where they're raising families right. move into Amherst, then you'd have more kids in the schools. And what I've understood is the school population has decreased because people who can afford to live in Amherst tend to be maybe older and their kids are no longer in school and they've moved out. And so there's, there's a connection there. And I'd just love to hear right. your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, and these are my thoughts, not as a school committee, you know, almost, yeah. almost an, official, uh, an official, but um, what I have heard through living in town and being involved in, in town affairs, um, there is a, uh, the school population is declining, but I am told that part of that is demographic trends statewide and that, that a decline is not unique to Amherst. Um, there is also the concern that because we have so many college students living in single-family housing that that's displacing families or making it harder for them to move in. Um, that may be, but I, I don't know if that can really be quantified. What the school committee does have perhaps some control over is um, retaining families who either choice out of the districts or send their kids to a charter school or a private school. And trying, you know, it, we would benefit a lot just by keeping more of the students who are in our district in the first place. So Sarah Marshall, school committee elect member, um, you mentioned transparency. You mentioned that we've had on the show several resigning school committee members mm -hmm. from Amherst since May, that were that felt like the community didn't. Um, some felt that the community didn't recognize their contributions, or were, it became it became acid in the relationship between the school committee members and as individuals and the communities they were representing on the committee. What can Sarah Marshall do to bridge that gap that was felt by your predecessors? Well, I can't insert myself or speak to the relationship between uh, committee members who are maybe no longer on the committee. I can only say I will be a, a, a fresh voice and a fresh face and hopefully establish um, good working relationships with all the people serving on the committees. I'm already acquainted with several of them. Um, I think a lot of the hard feeling um, developed since since the graphic article and and um, very um, passionate uh, public criticism from members of the of the public you know a lot of which is completely understandable because what happened or what was alleged to happen was so disturbing and of course every adult wants to protect the children in the schools I mean no I have no quarrel with that at all but um, but the very angry um, comment continued for so long that in my view, and I have no inside knowledge of this, talking to committee members or anything, it just, um, it, it perhaps impeded the ability of the committee members to do the work and make the change that was necessary. I, I'm, not sh I'm not sure, um, but it is true, it seems, to me to be true that in public comment, you more often hear from people who 
who are upset about something than people who are, who are happy. You know, the, the happy people don't necessarily turn up and say so. Not that anyone, I'm not suggesting anyone was happy with what happened in the spring, but um, yeah, if the public criticism can be harsh. I think all elected officials know that. It's just part of the, part of the process. We've spent a lot of time on this show talking about what happened in Amherst, uh, what the persons who were critical of the school committee members had to say, what the school committee members had to say about how they were treated, uh, and quite a bit about what were the underlying causes of this very, very intense dispute. Mm -hmm. Is it resolved now? Is it over? Do you get as a new school committee member actually to go on, or do you have to relitigate this? I don't yet have any more information than any mem other member of the public. I believe, I have the impression that the, um, let's say the consequences uh, of the investigations are still unfolding. And that, you know, whatever changes may have been recommended or that the superintendent, uh, acting superintendent decides are warranted, that those are happening, but I don't know that they're all done. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of any personnel actions. But there is a lot of other work um, that has been started but needs to be supported and ongoing uh, about training staff, training everybody about the rights of students and our op the school's obligations, um, not you know, legally, <laughs> by state law, to uh, prevent harassment and bullying. And, and so I'm sure the new committee will be following up on that. I'm sure it does, at least I don't consider that that's been dealt with and now everybody understands and everybody's doing what they need to do. I think the committee needs to be sure to follow up very closely. Yeah. This is Dan again. Um, I want to know how the, you think the school committee will be able to educate the Amherst public on the exact functions and parameters that you have control over. It seems to me, like in hearing uh, all of these stories from people coming in, is residents have, some residents have an understanding of the school committee's parameters. And when I hear from school committee members, they say, no, that's not within necessarily our purview. H how do you bridge that gap? <laughs> um, I would like to be able to um, project on a screen above the school committee. They sit meet in the, the high school library and there's a screen and just put it up there at the start of every meeting what the duties um, uh, of the school committee are, you know, where, where it has the legal ability to act and, and not, I mean, the list of what it can't do is longer, but just to make it clear what the school committee can do. However, the um, superintendent is always at the meetings and the public is also speaking to the superintendent and that person is the, you know, the CEO of the school system. And so some of the public comments I feel, I mean, whether the, the commenter understands it or not, are, are to be heard by, well, heard by everybody, but acted on perhaps by the superintendent, not by the school committee. But I do think that just like literally making it visible, the duties of the school committee and, and I assume, be helpful. And I assume as a member of the school committee, you meet uh, for coffee with parents all the time. Is that, is that part of the job you envision that like you'd be like, <laughs> I hey, I have to get, told there's anything told. formal about that. I yeah. certainly want to be available and um, um, 
have thought about proposing to have, I don't want to call it office hours, maybe coffee hours. Coffee hours um, or something you like know, that. Or just, coffee just... all the time. I'm signing <laughs> it's up. It's free coffee for Sarah. I'm going to assume right. the other person wants to have coffee with you. They're going to buy oh, it. Oh, sure, sure. Or tea, whatever. Or tea, whatever. yeah. Hot chocolate. We are yeah. Uh, speaking with Sarah Marshall, the newly elected member of the Amherst School Committee, about uh, her view uh, when she peeks, peeks into the... Uh, future, what uh, she, her hopes and aspirations are as a school committee member, as a citizen of Amherst, and as a parent of students who went to the schools. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with Sarah Marshall. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Amherst School Committee member-elect Sarah Marshall. Sarah, before the graphic article came out, and I think in May, um, we and, and we should remind our listeners, the graphic is the student the High school student. High school student. student. Yes. Thank you. Yes, it is. And, and there were allegations of disparate treatment of people who were uh, either trans or LGBTQ right. that led to uh, the kind of history we were talking right. about before we took that break. But um, we, our attention was focused on a, an election, a, a special question about whether or not voters wish to fund new elementary schools in Amherst. That was the big topic. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly, they said yes. I want to know about what's happening with those new elementary schools and how does the budget get impacted by those new elementary schools? All right. Uh, first of all, um, the, the vote was to exclude debt 
for one new elementary school building, but it is to house um, two, the populations for two existing schools, so the Fort River and the Wildwood Elementary Schools. Um, so those schools we, will be combined into the one new building. Um, so it, I don't believe it will, that vote will directly affect the elementary school budgets for a while, but um, certainly the, the expectation and hope is that having such a, a new school and energy efficient school will mean that the maintenance costs, just the, the operating costs of you know, tending to the, build, the school building and to pay for the electricity and the, you know, all the energy costs will be very much reduced. So um, that would perhaps free up that money to be put in more directly into instruction, into, into teachers and, and paras and, and school services. Bill, you were talking about the fiscal cliff that Sarah was just talking about before. Yeah, I would like to know more about how you see the school committee solving the funding over used word crisis that's yeah. go about to come to a head. The Amherst school budget has been supported by non-recurring one-time federal money. Going forward, are there cuts in the future to programs, well, to staff, to, to teachers? Can't have a, a school system uh, that has a budget that's higher than what is appropriated that's for right. it. We have to, yeah, we can't have an operating deficit. Um, so it's, it is my understanding, because I haven't been directly through this process before, of course, that um, it is up to the superintendent and his business staff to develop a proposed budget um, based on what the school principals uh, request or suggest. So, so it is up. They they have the I mean, obviously, great expertise in knowing what kinds of funding, how how the different sources of funding are constrained, and what can be shifted to what need to free up this to do that. Um, but of course, the school committee is going to have the final say and decide whether, for example. Um, uh, class sizes will need to be increased significantly. Uh, that's one possibility. And, and is the town, this is Dan again, is the yes. town council the one who gets to allocate uh, the amount of funding? Yes. Like where does that come from? Yes, they, the town council is the, uh, is the appropriator <laughs> of funds, of taxpayer funds for the school. So the school committee, the elementary school committee, Amherst, um, submits a budget, passes a budget that it, submits to council mm. for approval, but it may not be approved. And last year, um, the full amount was not approved by council, and mm. uh, the school committee then had to make cuts. Mm. So um, it, is the, the search for the new superintendent, has that begun? Uh, the process has begun. There is a subcommittee um, working on just really what the process will be, whether to engage a search firm to help in that, what the job description is, what the, you know, how big the kind of the interview team will be and what, um, what, a, what members of the public, like, like how many members of the public. And are those conversations open to the public about what the this, process should look like? Sure. There are subcommittee, well, they're, yes, because they're public meetings. I don't know if those subcommittee meetings are broadcast, but they are, uh, they, those 
that subcommittee reports back to the regional school committee, so you can hear about it at those meetings. Um, so that so that is underway. Um, when the new committee takes office, of course, then they're going to be more deeply involved. <laughs> well, Sarah Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for being willing to serve your community and our future, our children. Amherst schools uh, have been in the headlines for not the best of reasons, but our hope is that despite the fiscal problems that we could turn all this around. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Remember, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's